As we left off last time, probably one of the greatest uh, miracles to some extent we saw in Joshua chapter 10. If you weren't here with us, I encourage you to familiarize yourself with the first part of the chapter if you haven't quite read it before. A confederation of uh, five different kings all at once came together uh, to try and uh, sort of stop the advancement of the children of Israel as they've been going through and seeming to have some success conquering different territories with their God behind them Uh, and it tells us that this uh, king uh, recognizing fearing greatly Adonai Zedek called together a confederation of five other nations in the area hoping to try and uh, withhold the Israelites from any further success but God gave confidence to Joshua once again telling him not to be afraid not to fear and in some ways God turns around a situation for their betterment where basically God allows them to have a victory of not just one people group but five nations at once in one uh, fail swoop God allows them to have victory and God encourages Joshua that he had already turned them over into their hand he said not a man's going to stand before you don't be afraid advance against them Joshua so Joshua marches all through the evening with courage and faith believing in what God was going to do goes against them begins to experience great success in them uh, against them in battle and recognizing the hand of the Lord so much so that it tells us there in verse 11 that as they were having victory and fleeing that the Lord then not wanting to allow any to escape even began to rain down hailstones uh, from heaven against the enemies of Israel and was basically raining down these hailstones not upon his people but specifically upon the enemies of Israel to give them further success and Joshua at that point feeling so encouraged and emboldened praised this incredible prayer that God would ask the son uh, to stand still by his control over all creation and God answers the prayer of Joshua uh, and uh, extends the daylight hours so he could, confi- uh, could finish this uh, military Uh, campaign that he was on it tells us that God kept the sun from going down for about the course of a whole day so not just a local miracle but a global miracle God does causing the sun to give additional daylight the extension of a day Uh, and it tells us there at the end of where we left off verse 14 let's just read it once again it says there and there has been no day like that before it or after it that the Lord heeded the voice of a man the reason why for the Lord fought for Israel again because Joshua was following God's will because Joshua was doing what he was in step with God's plans and God's purposes God honored that and the battle didn't belong to them it wasn't their battle it was the Lord's battle and whenever we become aligned with what God is doing God's favor is going to be upon it God's hand God's power and God is going to want to answer our prayers it tells us that are in accordance with his will first John tells us that that if we ask anything according to his will he hears the petitions that we ask of him and we can be certain that he's going to answer the key for us is to be discerning and sensitive to the Holy Spirit and the Lord's leading so that we're not asking according to our will for our preference but that we're asking things in prayer interceding and doing things in alignment with the will of the Lord because when we get in alignment with the will of the Lord his favor is going to be upon that and God does this incredible miracle again if you really just take some time to ponder what he did there for one man it doesn't say that God did this miracle for a movement it doesn't say he did the miracle for a ministry it says he did this miraculous powerful thing for one man for one individual who cried out to God for his power and his help and God graciously and powerfully came to the aid of Joshua and gave them this incredible victory in the experience of battle now as we continue on in verse 15 here it says then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal remember this was the place where they sort of seems always returned back to Gilgal Uh, where their campsite was after their military campaigns they would always return back there it seems for a time of recuperation and uh, spiritual refreshment this was sort of headquarters 
But verse 16 says, but these five kings who had just come together had fled and hidden themselves in a cave at Makeda. And it was told Joshua, word comes back to him, saying the five kings have been found, discovered, hidden in the cave of Makeda. So Joshua said, roll large stones against the mouth of the cave and set men by it to guard them. And do not stay there yourselves, but, he says, pursue your enemies and attack their rear guard. That is the, the, the straggling soldiers that were lagging behind. They hadn't finished the military campaign completely. He says, do not allow them to enter their cities. Why? So that they don't, in a sense, regather and, and, and try and regain strength. Finish the battle, he's saying, for the Lord your God has delivered them into your hand. So word comes back to Joshua that the five kings who brought this collective campaign this confederation of kings against him in this recent battle have fleed in the midst of the battle and they've went and they've hidden themselves in the cave of Makeda because they're realizing that of course Joshua and Israel would be after them so they flee and hide and word comes back now to Joshua where they're at and in verse 18 Joshua says look don't go after them don't trouble yourself with the kings yes it's important that we take care of them as the the leaders of these people groups that was important but he says don't allow yourself to be distracted by the kings keep pursuing the enemy themselves the rest of the soldiers until they're completely dealt with and Joshua here shows incredible military wisdom and I think just leadership wisdom in general by being wise by not being distracted by something that comes to his mind and something that did need to be dealt with but he doesn't allow himself to get distracted off of the main pursuit that God had for them and he recognizes that there's a timing for all things to happen and that sometimes things need to happen in the right order and in the right priority so he says look just roll some stones over the cave entrance where they went in keep them hidden and locked away so they can't get out post some guards there we'll deal with that eventually but let's put that on hold and let's finish the thing that god told us to do first and once that's dealt with then we'll come back and we'll deal with these kings and wisely here avoids a distraction whereby he fails to fulfill the very thing that god wanted him and the israelites to focus on at that point in time and i think as i said this shows great wisdom it's a great spiritual lesson that there are times in our lives when we need to be careful that we don't allow ourselves to get distracted with something that comes across our radar and instantly pull off of what we're supposed to be doing and go over here and try and address this because people like, hey, wait, there are five kings over here in this cave and it'd be really good to, to deal with them and we should. They're the trouble starters anyway and, and sometimes things come across our radar and people say, you, you need to deal with this or you should go address that and at times we can somehow begin to get out of priority and sync with the Lord and go after the thing that kind of comes across our radar and somewhat get a little bit distracted and forfeit the opportunity to finish faithfully addressing what God has called us to. There's a time and a season for every purpose under heaven. The Bible even says there's a time to embrace and there's a time to refrain from embracing. And Joshua here recognizing this isn't the time to deal with the kings. Let's finish defeating the armies thoroughly and completely just seal off the kings and we'll go back and deal with them later. And in your spiritual life, I take the lesson here. There's a time, be careful that you don't allow yourself to get sidetracked and, and pulled away at times from things that God has you focusing on. Sometimes it's important to, to stay the course, to pay attention. You know, With Nehemiah, when God called him to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, when you read in Nehemiah's story there, there were always little things that were happening to try and frustrate the work. And then ultimately, when that didn't work, the enemies of Nehemiah were trying to coax him to come out and to, to meet them. They said, come and meet us in the plains of, of Ono. Now, that should be a given right there. If, if ever you're invited to go meet somebody in the plain of Ono, oh that's not a good place to go to. And Nehemiah's answer is classic. He says, listen... I'm doing a great work right now. I, 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 I can't come down and, and meet you. In other words, he recognized, look, this is what God has me doing. 
This is the thing God has me on right now. And if I were to leave from what I'm doing just to go and do this, it would just distract me and derail me from the thing God wants me to stay focused on. So uh, pay attention to these things. Here, Nehemiah shows great wisdom and leadership in that sense. He's going to come back and deal with them, but he says, seal them off now. Don't stay there, though. Keep pursuing your enemies. Let's finish what God's told us to do. And then we'll come back afterwards and address this. So verse 20 says, Then it happened while Joshua and the children of Israel made an end. Notice they finished what they were called to do. They made an end of slaying them with a very great slaughter till they had finished that those who had escaped entered four to five cities. Verse 21, interesting verse. And all the people returned to the camp to Joshua at Makedah in peace. No one moved his tongue against any of the children of Israel. Now, I want you to notice verse 21 there. <clears throat> we read it quickly, but take notice. There's actually somewhat of a testament to a miracle there. It says in verse 21, and keep in mind, there was this massive military threat and campaign and battle that just went on. This is armed conflict. And again, this isn't standing back, firing missiles from afar, launching uh, you know, uh, things from a distance. This is close hand-to-hand type combat that happened in ancient warfare and it says there in verse 21 of the children of israel after this battle they were engaged in that all the people returned to the camp point being not one casualty that's pretty incredible not one casualty that's indicating here not one life was lost in the midst of that battle and in that that conflict that was taking place which is not a normal thing. That's very unusual. But the indication, it was the preservation of God. It was the miraculous preservation of God to spare them from hurt and damage. And again, there is no safer place to be than to be right in the center of the will of God. You are safer in the middle of the most dangerous form of warfare sword swinging around you and 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 spears flying by your head and and people fighting hand to hand you are safer there if that's the will of god and where he wants you to be than you are sitting in the most safely guarded fortified palace with everything you can to try and protect yourself when you are in the middle of god's will god's going to protect you God's going to preserve you and you're much safer there. And this is incredible, really, if you think of that God preserved them. And this, again, victory of Israel was becoming such a, a powerful thing that it says in verse 21 that of the people of the land, no one moved his tongue against the children of Israel. That is, people were becoming speechless. How are these people doing this? How are they defeating people groups? How are they winning against such odds? And, 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 and the people were basically put to silence because they could not explain how is this happening? How is, their, how is their God doing this for them? And listen, I think there are times where God wants to work in a way where by he works where, where people kind of come to that same place. How in the world is this happening? How is he continuing to, you know, to handle this? How is she continuing to, to be faithful to the Lord despite this? How are they overcoming this? How are they handling it? And this would crush anyone. This would destroy anyone else. And yet people begin to recognize there's something supernatural going on. There's something that God is deeply involved in. And I think this just gives great opportunity for the testimony of the Lord to be spread among people who don't know him when they realize his hand is involved in a situation supernaturally. Verse 22, Joshua then said, open the mouth of the cave. So we're back now where the kings were sort of preserved and kept under guard. Bring out those five kings to me from the cave. And they did so and brought out those five kings from the cave, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Hebron, the king of Jarmuth, the king of Lachish and the king of Eglon. And so it was when they brought out those kings to Joshua that Joshua called for all the men of Israel and said to the captains of the men of war who went with him, come near, this is certainly a, a Rambo type thing, come near, put your feet on the necks of these kings and they drew near and put their feet 
on their necks. So again, you, I, I love scenes like this because here is a godly man and he's, there's just the epitome of masculinity in the whole process. Again, here's a man who loves the Lord, who listens to God, who has a relationship with the Lord, and, and, and he's not effeminate. He's not weak. I mean, this is, this is a very masculine, hardened, battle-hardened individual, military general. He calls out these kings and he tells his other captains, put your, put your foot on their necks. Which, of course, again, understand, this was cultural practice in the ancient world. And it was just a symbolic indication of putting your foot on your enemy's neck was a symbolic indication of their complete subjection to you and to your authority, that they were completely subdued. You were putting your foot on their neck, indicating they are completely subdued under your power. It was symbolic. And Joshua now calls his leaders to do this to these kings. And then he said to them, once they were putting their feet upon their necks, Joshua then said in connection to that, do not be afraid, nor be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage, for thus the Lord will do to all your enemies against whom you fight. So as they're symbolically putting their feet on the neck of these five kings, a picture of, uh, of complete submission, having them under their submission, Joshua says to them with a prophetic word of encouragement, listen, don't be afraid. Don't be dismayed. There are more battles to be fought. And he says, and you see this picture? This is a picture of what the Lord is going to do for you as you continue to fight the battles that are ahead of you still. He's going to give you the victory. He's going to bring things into submission under your ability to control them, to overcome them. You're going to receive victory and the ability to conquer in the Lord. Again, the Bible tells us in the New Testament, it says that we are more than conquerors through him who loves us. Now, a conqueror is someone who rejoices after the battle. Hey, we've conquered and they can rejoice that they've conquered. What is more than a conqueror? More than a conqueror seems to indicate someone who is so confident they will conquer, they start rejoicing before the battle even starts because they're so confident that they're going to conquer because the Lord is going to help them to conquer. And this is kind of the idea here. Joshua encouraging the men here, the Lord is going to do this to all of your enemies. And the picture here, again, as I said, is bringing them into submission and subjection. Now, this is, of course, a good reminder for us because in the same way that this is a picture of how they conquered the promised land for the promised life in the spirit, this is what the Lord wants for us. The Lord wants for us not to be dominated by our enemies, the enemies of our flesh, our sin nature. He doesn't want us to be conquered. He wants us to conquer and he wants our flesh to be in subjection to us. He wants us to be ruling over our flesh. The Bible tells us in Romans chapter 6, as the result of our relationship and unification with Christ, sin shall not have dominion over you. It's to be the exact opposite. You shall have dominion over your sin nature. You shall now conquer over your flesh. And the Lord wants to give to us the same thing. He wants to bring our flesh into subjection to our control, our rulership over our flesh, to give us the victory in the spirit to be able to overcome. And Jesus wants to encourage us with that. Yes, it may seem like there are certain things you can't conquer, but Jesus wants to encourage us. You can conquer anything with me because I have the power to break the control of sin. I have the strength to give to you. And he, I think at times needs to encourage us. This is what the Lord will do. That enemy in your life that you're thinking, oh, this always just seems to, to have rulership over me. This always seems to conquer me. The Lord is saying, listen, stop being afraid. Believe I can give you victory over that. I can help you to conquer that. I want you to be having your foot on the neck of that enemy and have it be submitted to your control that you can rule over it by his power. And, and beautiful here, Joshua gives this word of encouragement. He's trying to instill faith into the leaders and into the people. And how beautiful he says, don't be afraid or be dismayed. Be strong and of good courage. Doesn't that sound familiar? That's what the Lord keeps telling Joshua. And now Joshua is taking the word of encouragement he's received from the Lord and he's just passing it on to other people. And I think it's a great thing when we do that. That which I've received from the Lord, I deliver unto you. And when the Lord gives you victory, the Lord gives you encouragement, 
pass it on encourage others with that same word of testimony that's one of the reasons why I've really enjoyed we've been doing as a part of the men's breakfast uh, having one of our men share testimony at the breakfast and one of the things that's wonderful about it not only does it make all the other guys feel normal that they're knuckleheads too and there's something strangely encouraging about that but there's also part of it that as we give that testimony that other guys begin to say wow the Lord did that for you I bet the Lord could do that for me then. And there's something about that. There's this word of, hey, this is what God's done in my life. And this is how he's helped me that becomes a very encouraging thing to instill faith and encouragement into the hearts of others. So listen, share those things. Be like Joshua here. Be someone who encourages people. They don't have to be overcome by their enemies spiritually, but they can overcome because the Lord will give them help in that fight. Verse 26 says, Afterward, Joshua then struck them and he killed those kings and he hanged them on five trees and they were hanging on the trees until evening so again a typical cultural practice you would hang the king or the leader of a people group conquered there in public as a way of indicating if you seek to resist us this will be your fate next but again in accordance with Jewish law they didn't leave them there beyond the daylight hours they honored the the law of God so it was at the time of the going down verse 27 of the sun that Joshua then commanded and they took them down from the trees and cast them into the cave where they had been hidden and laid large stones against the cave's mouth which remained until this day now verse 28 you'll see down through verse 39 of this chapter uh, basically records the conquests the military victories of the southern area of the land of Canaan that Joshua and the Israelites began to conquer it basically becomes at this point a, a record of their military victories and the different people groups now I realize that some of this is a little bit tedious and quite honestly chapter 11 and part of chapter 12 includes some of the same stuff so we'll try and do our best to summarize some of these things make some application but uh, forewarning in advance or if you're needing a time to nod off this may be the time it happens to you uh, in advance but God recorded it so if the Holy Spirit recorded it I think it's worthwhile we at least read it uh, and if nothing else we'll do that just to expose ourselves to why God recorded it so verse 28 on that day Joshua took Makeda and struck it and its king with the edge of the sword he utterly destroyed them all the people who were in it he let none remain he also did it to the king of Makeda as he had done to the king of Jericho and Joshua passed from Makeda and all Israel with him to Libna, and they fought against Libna. And the Lord delivered it and its king into the hand of Israel, and he struck it with the people who were in it with the edge of the sword. He let none remain in it, but did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. And then Joshua passed from Libna and all Israel with him to Lachish, and they encamped against it, and they fought against it. And the Lord delivered Lachish into the hand of Israel, who took it on the second day. So it seems that could be a reference to that the, it required more than one day of battle. And sometimes our battles don't always come at the same pace. Sometimes we may conquer something right away. Sometimes it takes an extra day or an extra time frame. And that could be what that's a reference to. They had to stay at it a second day to overcome in this battle who took it on the second day and struck it with all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, according to all that he had done to Libna. And then Horham, uh, Horam, excuse me, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. From Lachish, Joshua passed to Eglon and all Israel with them, and they encamped against it and fought against it, and they took it on that day, and struck it with the edge of the sword and all the people who were in it he utterly destroyed that day according to all that he had done to Lachish you begin to get the idea as you're reading these conquests of the southern areas do you take notice not just that God's not only a good record keeper but God is aware of every battle that we're engaging in whether we're being attacked or we're going on the proactive initiative of, hey, I need to conquer this. I need to attack this and be zealous and, and, and eradicate the presence of this from my life spiritually, this sin, this enemy, this thing that keeps defeating me mentally or, or, or morally or whatever. The wonderful thing is every battle that we're engaged in, 
whether we're assaulted or we're taking the offensive attack to deal with it, God's aware of every battle that you're dealing with. And he's with you in every battle. And you notice the continuous reference, the Lord delivered, the Lord delivered. The Lord's the one helping us in our battles. It was the Lord supernaturally. They were, yes, involved and engaged in the process, humanly speaking, but it was the favor of God, the hand of the Lord and his power that was giving them the victories in these battles. So Joshua, verse 36, went up from Eglon, all Israel with him to Hebron, and they fought against it. And they took it and struck it with the edge of the sword, its king and all its cities. The people who were in it, he left none remaining according to all that he had done to Eglon, but utterly destroyed it and all the people who were in it. And then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to Debir and they fought against it and they took it and its king and all its cities and struck them with the edge of the sword, utterly destroyed all the people who were in it. He left none remaining as he had done to Hebron, so he did to Debir and its king, as he had done also to Libna and its king. So, again, perhaps you noticed as you read each one of these conflicts, the half a dozen or so references to different territories, Debir and Libna and Hebron and Eglon and Lachish, there's this continual, I believe, purposeful reference there of the Holy Spirit that Joshua conquered those areas, the people conquered those areas by the edge of the sword, by the edge of the sword. Now, that would seem to go without saying, okay, that's how they fought in that day, we understand. But again, all things written for our benefit to perhaps remind us that in every battle, consistently, it was by the edge of the sword, they conquered their enemies and they experienced victory. And, and, and in our spiritual battles, there is one common thing consistently that will be the source that helps us to experience victory and that is by us utilizing the sword of the spirit which is the word of God there is nothing more effective and powerful that we have to experience victory of the battles in our lives our mental battles the battle with our own feelings at times that get us depressed or anxious or discouraged or worried or fearful or, or, or our struggles with our sin nature or whatever it may be, spiritual warfare, then utilizing the, 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 the edge of the sword, the sword of the spirit, the word of God, reading it, obeying it, acting upon it, believing it. God's word is the sword. It is the battle weapon that God has given to us. It will work better than anything else. Do you want more victory? Do you want to experience consistent victory? Then never detach from your commitment to the word of God. Keep a tight grip on the sword. Keep the sword at your disposal. Utilize it wisely as a Christian. It's the thing God's given to you. When you set down the sword, you will begin to become defeated spiritually. Hold on to the word of God. Use the word of God. It's the greatest tool and weapon he's given to us spiritually for victory. Verse 40, so Joshua conquered all the land, the mountain country of the south, and all the low land of the wilderness and the slopes and all their kings. He left none remaining, but utterly destroyed all that breathed as the Lord God of Israel had commanded. Again, it was complete eradication. They were to, to conquer in that way militarily. And Joshua conquered them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza and all the country of Goshen, even as far as Gibeon and all these kings and their land. Joshua took at one time, again, notice, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. So again, do you notice the cooperative uh, process there? Two times, verse 40, verse 41, as it's reading a summary of the territories, Joshua conquered, verse 41. Joshua conquered, verse 42. How did he do that? Because the Lord fought for Israel. There was human responsibility and there was God's divine power and God's sovereignty at work at the same time. And these two things go hand in hand. When we engage in battles, there is a part that we do have to play. Believing, walking in obedience, taking steps of faith, being willing to repent. Being, there is a part that we have. They didn't just sit back in, in Gilgal and say, well, I guess if God's given us victory, we'll just sit back here and eat bonbons and you know, polish our swords and God will just fight all our battles for us. If they did that, they'd never have victory. 
They'd never have conquest. They would never gain territory. They'd never move forward. They'd never overcome. They'd never eradicate the things that were a threat and a detriment to their lives if they just did nothing. They did have a part. God did the work. God brought the power. God granted the success. But that was given in cooperation with human obedience and stepping in to the things God told them to do. And same with us. God says to us, look, I'll give you the victory. But you do need to fight the good fight. You need to get engaged. There are things that we need to do. We need to pray. We need to read the word of God. We need to be obedient. And we need to to keep ourselves in line with the will of the Lord and make good and righteous and godly choices. And if we do that, God will honor that. And God will bring the power and God will help us to have victory over our enemies and to have success because the Lord will fight for us. And the Lord will help us and it will be his supernatural power that is the reason why we experience the victories that we do. Verse 43, then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. So again, he goes back continuously to Gilgal. Remember, that was the place, Gilgal, where they originally committed themselves to the Lord. Remember, that was the place there where as they were in Gilgal, they celebrated the Passover. There was something very special about Gilgal. It was a place of commitment and consecration to God. And it seems they always went back to that place. Hey, we need to go back to Gilgal. That, that's the basis of everything. And I think it's good for us as we're out fighting the conflicts and, and serving the Lord. We always need to come back, if you would, kind of the foot of the cross to that place in our life where we, again, just you know, recuperate spiritually and have some time of worship and remember what it's all about, our commitment to the Lord, our consecration to Jesus. I think communion's a great time for us to do that. But beyond that, there, that, that, that Gilgal place for us, that, that always coming back to the camp, if you would, Back to spiritual headquarters, realigning ourselves spiritually, getting ready for the next battle uh, as we go out once again. Now, chapter 11, again, continuing on, now records for us sort of the conquest of the northern territories. If you were to look at a map of the, the conquering of the land of Canaan, of the Israels, this is now going to the north. It came to pass when Jabin, king of Hazor, heard these things that he sent to Jobab king of Madon, the king of Shimron, to the king of Aksaph, and to the kings who are from the north, in the mountains and the plains south of Chinneroth. Now, Chinneroth is a reference to the Sea of Galilee as we know it, typically referred to in the Gospels, in the lowland, and in the heights of Dur on the west, to the Canaanites in the east and the west, the Amorite, the Hittite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite in the mountains and the Hivite below Hermon in the land of Mizpah, point being everybody up north. You got that. So they went out and all their armies with them, but notice that's a lot of people, as many people as the sand of the sea that is on the seashore in multitude. That's a way of saying innumerable. You know, we live by a beach area here. You ever try and count all the grains of sand on the seashore? That, that, that's impossible. Why? Because it's just too many to count. It's, it's impossible to even number. This is giving us an idea of how massive now this uh, you know, confederation, again, of multiple nations is ready to come against Israel now from the north. So many as the sand of the seashore and multitude, that how many people, you can't even count them, and on top of that, many horses and chariots. And again, so they're, they're outnumbered numerically and that indicates they're outnumbered in technology because horses and chariots, these were basically the, you know, the tanks and the, the technological vehicles of warfare in that day. It puts you at a great advantage if you had horses and chariots and not just foot soldiers. So this is a very threatening, probably the largest threat and intimidating force so far. And when all these kings had met together, they came and camped together, verse 5, at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. Now, as word comes to this, to Joshua, of this kind of a force coming against them, understandably, they've had a lot of victory and a lot of success, but they've never taken anything this huge on so far. You know how that kind of works sometimes where you've kind of conquered this and you've dealt with that and you've taken care of this and, and you, you fought that battle and this came against your life. But then all of a sudden, sometimes in our life, there comes that thing and you go, 
this is bigger than anything I've ever faced before. This is huge. I, I mean, this, this is impossible. I mean, I've faced things before. I've had to persevere through things before. But this is massive, man. Th this is like nuclear. I mean, th this, this is just beyond my ability, to even the scope of it, to think about how I can, can handle this or what I'm going to do. And so certainly you can understand what's Joshua going to begin to do again. He's, he's, gonna, he's, he's a man. In his humanity, he begins to feel a little bit alarmed. But look at verse 6. The Lord's so gracious. The Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid because of them. For tomorrow, about this time, I will deliver all of them slain before Israel. Again, God doesn't say don't be afraid unless someone's struggling with fear. Shows you. Again, Joshua struggling with fear. He's feeling intimidated, as sometimes we all do. We face the, the massive thing, the huge obstacle, the threatening experience. We become nervous. And so the Lord so mercifully, graciously comes along and his voice says to us, listen, I know. I know what it looks like. But don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I'm not going to abandon you. And just because the odds seem so much bigger in this battle than any other battle, listen, one person with God makes a majority. That's just that's how it works. You can have 10 people in a battle, and if you don't have God, you're dead. Then you can have 10,000 people in a battle against you, but if you have God, that makes all the difference in the world. The difference is where you stand in relation with the Lord. So the Lord says, Joshua, listen, I'm not intimidated by this. This looks threatening to you. But again, we always have to remember... God doesn't measure things the same way we do. I'll give you an example. Health things, right? Uh, you say, oh man, I'm having a really bad migraine. I'm oh, the headache. Oh, this is so horrible. And you know, would you pray for me, brother? I got this really bad migraine. Sure, I'll pray for you. Hey, no problem. If it doesn't work, I'll take three Advil, right? It's a headache. But then all of a sudden, we get the report back from the doctor, cancer 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 oh my now again from a human perspective certainly that's the big one that's the C word nobody likes to hear the C word that's intimidating threatening and then all of a sudden we do something like this oh God you know all of a sudden our, our, our prayer is different as if somehow God's going yeah because headache no problem cancer that's a little tougher for me i'm glad you're really pleading with me now as if somehow god's more at a disadvantage facing cancer than he is a headache Listen, there's no difference to god to us certainly but to god god's not intimidated by anything anyone any circumstance and of course we process it humanly but what a wonderful thing to remember that nothing makes god afraid Nothing intimidates God and nothing is beyond God's capacity. And it is no harder, if it be God's will, don't misunderstand me, if it be God's will, it is no harder for God to cure cancer than it is to cure a headache. It is no harder for God to supply $7,000 in some financial crisis or need than it is to provide $70 in some financial crisis or need. If it's God's will, it's no more difficult one or the other for him. It's more alarming to us, we understand that. But God here mercifully says to Joshua, don't be afraid, Joshua, because of them. Tomorrow, I'm going to deliver all of them into your hand, slain before Israel. And he says, and you shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. So Joshua and all the people of war with him came against them suddenly by the waters of Merom. And attacked them. And the Lord delivered them into the hand of Israel, who defeated them. Again, notice the Lord delivered and Israel defeated. See again the cooperative work of God and man together. And they chased them to Greater Sidon, to the brook Miseroth, and to the valley of Mizpah eastward. And they attacked them until they left none of them remaining. So Joshua did to them as the Lord had told him. He hamstrung their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Now, we might look at that from a human perspective and we go, well, certainly Joshua's obeying the Lord there, verse 9. God said, hamstring all their horses 
and burn all their chariots with fire. And we might look and say, why in the world would God tell them to do that? I thought we just said that to have horses and chariots made you a very strong military advantage. I mean, they're valuable things. Horses and chariots. To hamstring a horse is basically to cut one of the tendons in the legs. I'm sorry if you're animal lovers. God wrote this, not me. It was a way to render a horse, in a sense, weakened so it was not therefore very useful in battle anymore. And to burn chariots is to ruin them. Why would, why would God tell him to do that? Well, very simply for this reason. Because God did not want Joshua to then accumulate those things and then assimilate those things into his military arsenal and warfare and then begin to think as he starts to have battles, hey, it's because of all these great horses and chariots and everything. That's why we're crushing everybody now. So, so God says, listen, I don't want you to trust in those things. Not that those things weren't valuable, but God in a sense is conveying, I don't need those things to give you victory, Joshua. And I don't want you to rely on the arm of the flesh. I don't want you to think that that is what you're... T- and, and see, we have a tendency to do that as human beings. Psalm 20 says, don't trust in horses or in chariots, but in the name of the Lord your God. And God knows that we have this tendency at times to trust in things or valuables or our money or our resources or our capabilities. And God doesn't want us to lean on the arm of the flesh. He wants me to, in every situation, you in every situation to say, Lord, I'll obey and I'll walk in faith. But if you don't do it, it's not going to happen. And he wants to work in ways where it's so evident it was him that brought the victory. So because of that here, Joshua obeys the Lord. It must have been hard probably to obey the Lord in that thinking, man, this seems like a waste. You ever had the Lord tell you to do something sometime and you're thinking, God, this don't seem real resourceful. Lord, you're telling me to do something that's contradicting logic. Why are you telling me to do this, Lord? I mean, aren't you a good steward? Yes, he's a great steward, but he cares more about just stuff. He cares about our spiritual development more than he cares about all the stuff sometimes of this earth. And that is the number one priority because God has one goal in mind if you're a Christian, to get you ready for heaven. And he will do everything in my life and your life, whether we like it or not, everything is a tool in your life to do one thing foremost is to get you ready for heaven. Because this life's a vapor, and to God, that's what the majority of your existence is going to be heaven. So God uses everything, our marriages, our relationships, our experiences, our money, our jobs, everything in our life. But boy, if we can keep that perspective, God's helping me to become more Christ-like, and he's working everything in a way whereby he's maturing us spiritually, building our faith, causing us to become more eternally focused then some ways it allows us to have a lighter grip on things and say, all right, Lord, if this is what's best for my spiritual development, I embrace it, I trust you, and accept it for what it's worth. So verse 10, Joshua then turned back at that time. He took Hazor, struck its king with the sword, for Hazor was formerly the head of those kingdoms. They struck all the people who were in it with the edge of the sword, again, utterly destroying them. There was none left breathing, and he burned Hazor with fire, again, because it was the head of those cities it seems the stronghold of them and the cities of those kings and their kings Joshua took and struck them with the edge of the sword he utterly destroyed them as far as Moses the servant of the Lord had commanded but as for the cities that stood on their mounds Israel burned none of them except Hazor only which Joshua burned so for some reason that was the only city they actually set the fire a few of them they did and most others they didn't in the conquest of the land And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the children of Israel took as booty or reward for themselves, but they struck every man with the edge of the sword until they destroyed them and left none breathing. As the Lord commanded Moses his servant, so Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did, love this sentence, he left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. I love that statement there of Joshua's total obedience I have it underlined he left nothing undone of all that the Lord commanded that is a real key in spiritual life complete obedience when God tells you and I to do something don't leave things undone go all the way go all the way not half-hearted obedience not halfway obedience Leave nothing undone. If God tells you to do something, 
carry it through. Be someone who follows through. The Lord is worthy of that obedience and it is a reason why he tells us to do what he does. So don't leave things undone. Fix things, finish things, take them to their full obedience and completion. Thus Joshua took all this land, verse 16, the mountain country in the south, the land of Goshen and the lowland, the Jordan plain and the mountains of Israel and its lowlands, from Mount Halek and the ascent to Seir as far as Baal-Gad and the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. He captured all their kings, struck them down and killed them. And so Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. Again, verse 18, made war a long time with all those kings. Take notice, we read these lists here and we think, wow, that's a lot of battles. And what did that take, you know, two, three months there? Chronologically, the conquest of the land and what you're reading here, it's been about five to seven years. So the point being is he's been at this for a while. Uh, There's been a, a duration of time. Victory over their enemies did not come easily and it did not come quickly. It it was incremental. He was at war with their enemies a long time. A long time. A war consists of many, many battles and victory for Joshua was not overnight and it was not easily. It took faithfulness. It took persistence. It took staying the course and continuing to be engaged in the the battles one by one. And you know what? Listen, ladies and gentlemen, the same is true in the spiritual life. From the day you're saved until the day you enter glory, there's going to be a constant conflict and an ongoing warfare spiritually battling against your flesh. It's a process. And we need to be patient and realize we're not going to experience victory easily and we're not going to experience victory quickly. It's a process. Be patient, but persevere. Don't lose heart. Don't give up. You know, when we first get saved, let's say when I first got saved, you know, July 12th, 1992, at that moment, the Lord looked at my life and he said, okay, Tony's saved, great. Okay, now between that point and the time that I rapture him off the planet, that's my preferred option, or he dies... There's about 327 things that I need to deal with in his life that are unchrist-like, sinful, and and so he, and 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 one by one I'm going to start working on this list. It'd be great, wouldn't it, if all of a sudden he just knocked out all 327 all at once? But that's not the way it works. I find one by one, systematically, incrementally, the Lord takes territory, takes territory, and as I walk with him and cooperate with him, he says, okay, we've conquered that, now we need to deal with this. And it doesn't come easily. It doesn't come quickly, but we have to be willing to be committed to the obedience, to the call of God, to spiritual victory, and walking in those things, conquering those territories over our flesh. And it takes faithfulness, faithfulness. And this is a picture of utter faithfulness. Joshua made war a long time with all those kings. He didn't give up. He didn't quit. And you know what? Faithfulness should be an earmark of the Christian servant of the Lord. We need to learn how to be faithful. One of the best definitions I've ever heard of faithfulness, it's always stuck with me, a long obedience in the same direction. That is the key to a fruitful, successful spiritual life victory over sin walking listen a long obedience in the same direction the cross before you the world behind you I was just texting with one of my daughters today and I said you know one foot in front of the other that's all you just keep putting one foot in front of the other there's not always super high peaks and super just one foot in front of the other you're facing the Bible every day praying every day consistently being in church walking Faithfully, obediently, a long obedience in the same direction. I'm not real smart, but I can just keep walking. <laughs> that's about all I know how to do. I mean, that's been my, the only thing I've known how to do in ministry. I don't bring much to the table other than I will just keep showing up. And eventually I found people just, you wear them out. You just wear them out. You just say, I guess he's not going to stop showing up. And, and it just, that's a part of the spiritual life. What else do we bring to the table? Seriously, what else do we bring to the table other than faithfulness? All the power happens from the Lord. But if we're not faithful, the Lord can't work. 
So our one simple thing, listen, if you can be faithful, you can experience victory in your spiritual life. Let's just finish up this chapter quickly. There was a city, it says, that made peace with the children of Israel, except the Hivites and Gibeon, and all the others took in battle. For it was of the Lord to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle, that he might utterly destroy them and they might receive no mercy but that he had, might destroy them as the Lord had commanded Moses. Again, as we said before, part of Israel conquering this land was God gave these people groups 400 years to repent of their idolatry, their immorality, their child sacrifice, their vile practices, their violence. And after 400 years, God is now finally using Israel. There was no repentance to basically bring about the judgment against their lives. And at that time, Joshua came and he cut off the Anakim from the mountains, from Hebron, from Debir and Anab and the mountains of Judah and all the inhabitants, excuse me, mountains of Israel. Joshua utterly destroyed them with their cities. None of the Anakim were left in the land of the children of Israel. They remained only in Gaza, Gath and Ashdod. And Joshua took the whole land according to all the Lord had said to Moses. And he gave it as an inheritance to the children of Israel according to their divisions by their tribes. Then the land rested from war. Now that inheritance we'll see is dispatched to the people recorded in chapter 13. But let me bring one last thing to your attention before we close out this evening. And that is this. Verse 21 and 22 describe Israel cutting off and defeating the Anakim. The Anakim from the land of Israel. It says they only remained existing in Gaza Gath and Ashdod. That was Philistine territory. Who were the Anakim? The Anakim, remember, were the giant-like people. The giant-like people. And remember, it was the Anakim, the descendants of Anakim, that terrified the spies when they went in the first time 40 years ago. And they came back and they said, there are Anakim in the land. There's no way. There are giants. There's no way. To... And they, they became fearful and they shrunk back and they didn't walk forward in obedience to what God wanted for them. Now here they are years and years later and the very thing that intimidated them, they're now conquering it in the power of the Lord. What an awesome thing that there are things that sometimes in our life that seem so intimidating, they terrify us, we think there's no way, it's too big and we turn and run from it. But God, little by little, says, we just need to build your faith. And so he gives us a little victory and then he gives us another victory. Then he gives us another victory. And as he builds our spiritual character and our spiritual perseverance, eventually, then we, like little David, say, who is this filthy giant Goliath defying my God? My God can destroy this. And how awesome that at times what may seem impossible, later on God grows us up spiritually, brings us around full circle, and then some of the biggest threatening obstacles God gives us victory later on because we realize that victory comes from the Lord. Well, let's stand. Let's pray together.